According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me in Proverbs, once again, returning to Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, and we're uh, working our way through the descriptions of the wicked. The lamp of the wicked, the violence of the wicked, the soul of the wicked, the house of the wicked, and the sacrifice of the wicked. There's five of the wicked phrases that are found in this chapter. And uh, we've covered most of them already. We've covered down through soul. We'll deal with house and sacrifice this morning. And then we'll move on to verses 5 and 6 where we have the plans of the diligent. I like these of the phrases that we have, you know, and uh, it's kind of interesting when you when you deal with these things. But anyway, it's a particular Hebrew construction that handles that, where you have a construct state and an absolute state, and uh, you deal with the different expressions as they're found there. But before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your blessings, continuing to trust in you and, and rest in your faithfulness, Father, to hedge us about and protect us, keep us from harm. And Father, bless uh, our time in your word as uh, we study to show ourselves approved. Thank you for being faithful, Father. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. By the way, I just confirmed, for those of you that come on Wednesday mornings, you're in for a special treat in the month of February. <laughs> so uh, we're going to have a missionary report. Uh, Jim and Phyllis Myers are coming to town, and um, the, the hour we could best fit them in is this hour, is the Wednesday morning hour. So they'll be here on Wednesday morning. They're going to go to Lost Pines on Wednesday night. They're going to be in Fredericksburg on Sunday morning. They were hoping to come here on Sunday night, and I had to broke my heart to tell them we don't have a Sunday night anymore. And uh, we're looking forward to restarting our Sunday night class, but not until, not until after we finish the Grace Notes classes we're doing on Sunday afternoons. So anyway, so it all worked out and we're going to have a missionary report here on a Wednesday morning. It'll be uh, February 17th if you want to mark your calendars on that. Then we'll have uh, a break from Proverbs for that week and have Jim and Phyllis joining us for that, for that time. All right, so Proverbs 21, as we started looking at these things, we saw in uh, verse 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. And we realize that the term for wicked is used several times. It's actually used eight times in, uh, in this chapter. The wicked are referenced eight times in this chapter, and five out of those eight usages have the, the Hebrew construction where there is a possession of the wicked that is being described. And so uh, five possessions that are described there. So in that verse list on the point there, verse 4, 7, 10, 12, 18, 27, and 29, twice in verse 12, that includes all eight of the, of the usages there that have rashat, that have the, the wicked here. But then five of those eight is uh, what we've been focusing on with the lamp of the wicked in verse 4, the uh, violence of the wicked in verse 7, the soul of the wicked in verse 10. And that's what we kind of ran out of time last week as we were working on the soul of the wicked uh, and the complete absence of grace as it's phrased here in verse 10. Get the Bible window up. 
Proverbs 21.10. The soul of the wicked desires evil and his neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. It's uh, sad, actually, the damage that gets done, the soul damage that gets done through prolonged carnality and prolonged neglect of the Word of God and uh, the other impact that it has. More than just placing you out of fellowship, it's, it actually lingers and it has a damage. And uh, I think Colonel Theme referred to scar tissue as, as one of the expressions and blackout of the soul as another expression. And uh, really reflecting what happens with the prolonged time in the darkness. And uh, in the A part and the B part of verse 10 here, we do see the, the impact on the soul there where it desires evil, but then also the lack of grace. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. And uh, when we're commanded to love our neighbor, and uh, you know this is uh, going to keep us from doing that, obviously. How do you love your neighbor when you can't even apply grace in impersonal love or any other application? So there is a, a complete absence of grace in this regard as well. We went and we took the time to go through 1 Samuel 25 and see the example of Nabal and uh, who was horrible in, uh, in this. And then uh, his wife uh, Abigail was actually saved the day there, not only showing grace but actually teaching divine viewpoints so that David could repent. He could confess, he could be restored to fellowship and he could be uh, kept from committing a tremendous evil which he was really on the verge of doing. Yeah, he, was, uh, he was on the verge of doing, so he was guilty of the mental attitude sin because he wanted to do it and he intended to do it. But then by God's grace and through the intercession of Abigail, he uh, was restored to fellowship before he could commit the, uh, the actual overt sin. And we have uh, a great blessing there. I do want to pick up on Isaiah 32. We didn't read it last week and um, it is uh, an interesting passage for me. So let's take a look at Isaiah 32 verses 6 through 8. And there's actually uh, a larger, obviously a larger context that leads up to verse 6. Let me just start at the top of the chapter here. It's a little bit political and it might uh, coincide with some current events that we might observe. Uh, Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. So if, uh, if your political leadership is righteous and uh, the king and the princes and, and uh, your political leadership, we, we might say the federal level and the state level, local level, at whatever level, when, when there is righteousness in government, then there's blessings. And uh, like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm. And we can appreciate that. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded and the ears of those who hear will listen. And uh, the mind of the hasty will discern truth. How about that? We're going to talk about hasty and why hasty is a problem and why diligence is designed. But there's actually a benefit where the hasty stops being hasty. And uh, there's blessing by association when people who don't normally think in the best possible way, they're blessed by seeing what right thinking does and they can adjust their thinking. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. So and this is really a prophecy looking forward to the millennial blessings and what Israel can anticipate when Jesus Christ himself is seated on the throne in Jerusalem. No longer will the fools be called noble, or the rogue be spoken of as generous. Those days are gone. Okay, 
And that kind of is a nice reflection of, uh, of the circumstances when you don't have a righteous king, when you don't have political leadership that's pursuing the Word of God. When your culture is dysfunctional, you end up with the fool who's called noble. You end up with a, a, a blithering moron and you think, how did you get in, uh, into office? Where, where, where did this come from? Why are we calling fools noble? Or rogues, why are they spoken of as generous? Yeah, it's easy to be generous when you're throwing money at people and it's not even your money, it's money you've stolen from other people. Uh, you know, the rogue is the ne'er-do-well that, uh, that uh, is appreciated because he's, he's sharing his plunder with other ne'er-do-wells. So that kind of foolishness comes to an end when righteousness is reigning in a nation. And clearly uh, this will be the case uh, when Jesus is on the throne, uh, there will never again be a fool that's going to be called noble or a rogue that will be spoken of as generous. For a fool speaks nonsense. So that's the lead up to these verses here in verses 6 through 8. For a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. So complete lack of grace to your neighbor, complete breakdown of, uh, of the culture. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. And so uh, anyway, I appreciated that. Verses 6 through 8, I think it's it's another illustration, shorter than the, than the Nabal story with Nabal and David, but yet de- clearly demonstrating if you have the right perspective and uh, you can make the right application in, uh, in these things, then uh, the soul of the righteous is going to do well, the soul of the wicked is going to do evil, and I think we see the grace or lack of grace um, directed towards the community there. All right, so that's, that wraps up main point C. We're ready now for main point D, the house of the wicked. The house of the wicked. And uh, looking at verse 12 here. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked, turning the wicked to ruin. So there's an object lesson, and the righteous one can learn from it. The righteous one can look at the consequences and be warned uh, that, uh, that that's not the path he wants to be on. The righteous one considers. All right, remember the idea of the house is more that it's not, we're not talking about the physical structure, the architecture of whatever shelter he resides under. We're talking about his, his, uh, his, his marriage, his children, his, his uh, slaves, his uh, servants, the, the possessions, the, the actual house, Okay. And, uh, and it's, uh, you know, we, we talk about the house of Windsor for, for the uh, ruling uh, uh, family in, in England or other houses, the house of Usher or the, the house of, of whatever. We have different houses. So the house of Bolander, you know, that would include, uh, not to, I'm not trying to illustrate, but just trying to talk about the, the larger heritage, what, we, what follows after you're gone. Because when in your son's generation, when he then takes the leadership of the house. So the house of the wicked, this deals with God's dealings with you personally and maritally and on a family basis and within your clan as the house progresses from one generation to the next in, uh, in these ways. In a lot of ways 
the, the biblical language of, of house and clan and tribe, uh, and a lot of that's lost to us in the modern world and in the, uh, particularly in the melting pot that, that the United States of America is. So uh, some of these studies we'll have to work on, uh, particularly uh, as we take our way through Genesis and we start working through the families and the clans and the tribes and the nations as God has established the principles of divine establishment there. All right. But the house of the wicked turns to ruin. And this is the destiny. This is what they have to look forward to. And God gives them time. There's a grace that allows for them to repent. There's always time for a generation to be humbled and to turn to the Word of God. But at a certain point when God, when that long suffering runs its course and God then turns to, uh, to the anger, then uh, the application is, is then given. And He's going to limit it. He's going to limit to the third or to the fourth generation. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, it, it could be turned around in any particular generation that uh, a son could get saved and turn to righteousness. And I think it's useful to see how a single generation can turn that around and, uh, and uh, put themselves on the path for God's blessing. Let's see some of these other Proverbs that address this principle as well. Proverbs 3.33 The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. And so just think about it. Think about the, the effects when you have spiritual well-being and domestic consequences. Okay, The spiritual well-being of a father and a mother that are in the Word of God and a father and a mother that are training up the next generation under the principles of, of the Bible. Does that convey a, uh, uh, an effect in your domestic life, in your home life, in your in your house, in your household. Yes, it does, clearly. And then likewise on the antithesis of that, the house of the wicked. And uh, does that affect the children? You know, how damaged are the children if, if uh, father and mother are not living under biblical principles and, and, uh, and, and you know, there's the anger and the sin and the whatever else that goes with that. Of course, tremendous harm that takes place in, uh, in those things. Proverbs 12, 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. And uh, consequences in time and then also consequences in eternity. Think about this. Think about the blessings that will be bestowed upon believers in their eternal reward for the, uh, the, the fruit that they bore during time. Of course, not with the wicked. They, uh, the unbeliever goes to hell and then ultimately the lake of fire and uh, does not, is not resurrected for any uh, glory that uh, that can follow. Verse uh, chapter fourteen and verse eleven. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. So many of these passages are similar in how they're being presented here, but this, with a description between a house and a tent, in, in the poetry of this, that this allows us to understand the. Uh, the, the, the literal physical structure you're living in, and even if it is a very humble tent, even if you are uh, mobile, if you will, and, and living uh, the, 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 life, the nomadic life of a, of a shepherd or a herdsman or, or something that's much more humble than maybe the palace or the, the wealth that the wicked accumulate for themselves, that doesn't matter either. That uh, as long as you're walking with the Lord, the actual structure that you uh, sleep under at night is, uh, is not the issue. So I kind of like that. Proverbs 15, 6. 
Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is the income of the wicked. And realizing the contrast here as well, spiritual wealth, the wealth from the Word of God, the, the uh, blessings here. And it may, it may be uh, that you could be as poor as a church mouse and yet the richest guy in town when it comes to your awareness of Bible doctrine and your, your uh, spiritual walk with the Lord. Trouble is the income of the wicked. Alright, so we have the house of the wicked. The final of the wicked that we have is the sacrifice of the wicked. The sacrifice of the wicked. Verse 27, we'll talk about the sacrifice of the wicked. Now if they're wicked, why do they sacrifice? <laughs> if they're wicked, why do they go to church? If they're wicked, why do they care about, about uh, any, any religious activity or bringing an offering or making a sacrifice or doing the things that they do? Uh, we talked about it a couple weeks ago and come back to the idea here again today. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? All right, how much more than when he brings it with evil intent? And so part of what we were dealing with, uh, I think a couple weeks ago, is the idea of using your religion uh, to as a mask. That you make an outward show and, and you bring sacrifices and you're participating in feasts and festivals and going to temple observance and whatnot, and yet your soul is a wreck. You have all this carnality going on. And uh, we saw that it can't be a cover, that you can't use your, uh, your religion as a cover. This was way back, do you remember, remember this? This was way back in main point four, if I have it right. Yes, God has desires and specifications regarding how He is worshipped and that He desires mercy more than sacrifice. He, that he, um, the principle that we were looking at there in... Um, showing how uh, religious observance cannot make up for deficiencies in one's personal walk. And notice how harsh many of those passages are. In Isaiah chapter 1 he's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, I'm sick of your sacrifices. He says, they stink. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough. And the language there is, is horrible. That, that he has the, uh, the greater desire is uh, verse 3 of here of Proverbs 21 that says, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. More than sacrifice. And so that's the principle that we had there. We'll get back now to our point this morning. The sacrifice of the wicked. It's an abomination. It's an outright abomination. And verse 27 says so straight up. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. And this is uh, language that the, script, the Scripture uses repeatedly, uses in a, in a broad assortment of context. It's not limited to the homosexual sins, which tend to get a lot of the conflict or a lot of the attention. Um, it, it does include the homosexual sins, but it also includes this religiosity. It includes the sacrifice of the wicked. Somebody who's trying to, uh, to make a big show with his religion. And uh, there's, there's a lot more that we should recognize with respect to the abomination. It's what God wants to push far from him. He holds it at arm length and even further. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a horrible thing. And uh, of course we get called haters if we preach what the Bible says related to the abominations. 
but it's uh, it is what it is, and uh, we don't apologize for it. We teach it faithfully, and and uh, we try to urge the other side to uh, to accept what the Word of God says, and to to be humble before the Lord, and and to uh, depart from the life of sin that that is currently enslaving them. Anyway. Um, so here's the principle. It's an abomination. We've also seen this in Proverbs 15, 18. Oh, Proverbs 15, 8, excuse me. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. He loves hearing us pray. It's intimate when we pray. It's a blessing for us to commune with our God, and He's designed us to pray. This is, uh, um, I think, something that, that we that's lost to us when we have such a cheap view of prayer that we think prayer is just simply an ATM card where we can make withdrawals and, and take things or get things and saying, you know, if, if our prayer life consists of nothing more than gimme, 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 that's, a, that's an infantile, childish prayer life. We're supposed to be fellowshipping with our, with our Father, fellowshipping with our Lord. We should be processing, the, it should be a time of, of, uh, of meditation upon His Word as we talk it over with the God who gave it. And uh, we may pray to the Lord for an hour at a time or two hours at a time and never even get around to asking for a single thing. Simply because we're fellowshipping over the, the truth of God's Word and we're celebrating how w- wonderful and awesome He is. And uh, maybe it'll take us at least an hour just to confess the sins of our nation and uh, before we even get around to asking for anything that uh, beyond, uh, beyond that. Anyway, the prayer of the upright is His delight. And uh, we certainly appreciate that. All right, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. And I enjoyed what Harry Ironside said about this verse. I was going to share with you a quote here. Harry Ironside, notes from the book of Proverbs. And uh, here's what he had to say related to Proverbs 21, 27. Make it large enough for you to read and honestly large enough for me to read. (laughs) All right. getting to squinting more and more these days. All right. Harry Ironside, he says, see the notes on chapters 15, verses 8, 9, and 26, also 21, 4. The sacrifice of the lawless is ever detestable and unacceptable in the eyes of God, but especially so when it is but a cover for hypocrisy. To carry on so-called religious duties to be seen of man and to hide a life of wickedness is iniquity of the most revolting character. It was this that caused our Lord so sternly to rebuke the scribes and Pharisees of His day. They were punctilious in observing the law and the added directions of the Talmud in regard to the temple offerings. They made broad their phylacteries. They loved to pray standing on the street corners to be seen of men. But meantime they profited at the expense of poor widows and were characterized by covetousness and wickedness of the vilest description. Their moral descendants are many in our own day who can put, and if boy, if Ironside could see, <laughs> could see where we are now, can you imagine? But he observed it in his own generation. So their moral descendants are many in our own day who can put on a devout expression, use pious words, and ostentatiously give of their wealth to public charities but whose inner lives are black and iniquitous. For a time they may cover from the eyes of men their true condition, but in God's sight their sacrifice is abominable. 
and I appreciated that. That was a, that was a blessing for me. All right, so we have the lamp of the wicked, the violence of the wicked, the soul of the wicked, the house of the wicked, and the sacrifice of the wicked. All of that is uh, stemming out of verse 4. So let's back up now. And take a look at verse 5. Alright, so is everybody clear on what we've done with this? We, we kind of took a, took a preview ahead to some other verses after verse 4. Um, so we got down through verse 4, we've covered the of the principle there. And then as we advance through the rest of the chapter, I'm going to be skipping over these ones that we've already covered. So that means we're not going to worry about verse 7, 10, uh, 12, or 27. We've We've already covered those. We kind of lumped them into our verse 4 outline and uh, we'll just take the rest of the chapter uh, and pretend those verses aren't there. <laughs> Alright, does that make sense? Follow what we're doing on that? Alright. So now let's look at, at verse 5 and 6. Let's talk about diligent planning. Main point 6 in the outline. Diligent planning beats hasty non-planning. <laughs> okay? All day, every day. Diligent planning beats, hasty, non-planning. And uh, that's kind of a simplistic summary of, of what these verses are saying, and we'll get more detail as we spell it out. But there's, uh, there's circumstances at work for why, on the one hand, a person is described as being diligent, and why, on the other hand, someone is described as being hasty or not diligent. And it comes to the, uh, the perspective of the person involved are they humble before the Lord and, and faithfully uh, running with endurance the race that's set before them? Sometimes that's a long, slow course. Um, and then, of course, the temptation that Satan will throw at you is, oh, no, no, you don't have to go to all that hard work. You can have it now. And all the get-rich-quick schemes and all of the, the temptations to avoid the tough price that must be paid, um, we see how, uh, how these things uh, can be thrown at the carnal mind. All right, so let's read verses 5 and 6, and uh, you'll see what we're going to be doing with this. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. So we've got the double surely verse here, the surely, surely. All right, so uh, speaking to the certainty, speaking to the unavoidableness of it, speaking to how God specifically rewards the attitudes and the actions of, of the, uh, the two different sides of this description the diligent and the hasty. Verse 6, the acquisition of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. So when you're, uh, when you're cheating, when you're hasty and, and cheating and, and attempting to use Satan's methods to obtain what you want, God sees that. And the, uh, the outcome of that is not pleasant. And uh, you might have a short-term enjoyment, the fleeting vapor, Maybe God allows you to obtain what it is you think you're gonna, you, you, you think you want. Maybe he, he does allow for Satan to reward the passing pleasures of sin, and you have, for a moment, you have a, a thrill at your success. But the fleeting vapor shows you that there's no substance to it, and in the in the spiritual realm, it's there's nothing to it. It's gone. There's nothing there, and all the enjoyment is a momentary. It's the momentary, um, in the book of Hebrews Moses calls the passing pleasures of sin. 
the pursuit of death. All right, so we have really three separate issues we're going to kind of zero in on in this. Um, and, and to me, as I read through both of these verses, the words that, that I think are useful for us to focus on are, let me color these, plans, diligent, and advantage. These are the words that we want to focus on. I think that the um, the blessings that He gives us, the blessings that He gives us, and, and His Word reveals for us, whereby we we uh, process His approach and we adopt it ourselves. We see that we want to be planners. Why? Because God's a planner. We want to be diligent. Why? Because God is diligent. You know, you think about God who took thousands of years to prepare and to announce and to, to send His Son. You know, Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden. And how long did it take for God to prepare for the coming of the Christ and for, for Jesus to be born at the, at the, in the fullness of time and for Jesus to die on the cross and, for, and then not just to bring us to that moment, but then to rise again, to ascend to heaven and now 2,000 years since then is God slow? As some count slowness, okay? He's patient, not desiring any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so it's a, it's a marvelous thing. And, and uh, you start thinking about, well, you know, if I was God, I would have had a faster plan than this. Well, that's why you're not God, okay? And good thing. And, uh, and we think about when, when Cain and Abel were born, and she gives birth to Cain, and she names him Cain, I have acquired a man-child, the Lord. You know, even under consideration, if the seed of the woman is going to be their savior, then Eve could be holding this little baby, Cain, and she believed this is her salvation, this is her deliverance, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and here she is holding this, this baby. Anyway, nope, redemption's not going to come that fast. It's going to be, you know, thousands of years later that uh, in, the, in the fullness of time that uh, that the uh, the Davidic virgin would would birth the Messiah in Bethlehem, but it would take thousands of years for these prophecies to unfold, to be given and to be to be longed for and to be anticipated. All these things. So God is a planner, from Alpha to Omega and every day in between. God is diligent; He never bails on His plans. And uh, even if it seems tedious, even if it seems slow, even if it seems that. Uh, that um, you know, there's a there's a quicker way to get it done. Well, maybe there is a quicker way, but it's not a better way. All right, because uh, if there was a better way, that's the way he would be doing. That in the plan of God, he wants the maximum glory for his son, and this is the way that brings it about. And then the advantage. What is the advantage? What is the um, the uh, the benefit that then accrues that? That uh, where you can look back and say, thank you, I'm glad I didn't cheat myself of this. I'm glad I didn't uh, uh, take another route that would have ended up with a different outcome besides the advantage that, uh, that God has designed. All right, so this is what we're going to be dealing with as we work our way through the, uh, the details here. This is Proverbs' eighth and final time to feature the Mechashavah, that is, the planning this is Proverbs' eighth and final time to feature 
Mechashavah. Here's a mouthful for you. All right. You say, I thought Hebrew words were always three letters long. Well, it is. It's just it's three letters long, but it has a, an M prefixed on the front of it, and it has the H tacked on to the end of it. Give it a feminine ending there as a feminine noun. The, but the three middle letters are, uh, are in fact the root of, uh, of this term. All right, so Mechashavah. Strong's number 4284. A, a, a noun that's used uh, 56 times throughout the Old Testament, eight of them in Proverbs, and this is the eighth and final one. It's one that we've seen in, in several previous contexts, going back to the childhood context of Proverbs 6 and uh, the warning that the parents give their children there. And then the remainder of these all in the personal and public portion from chapters 10 to 24. And uh, you can write these verses down starting in 618, 12, 5, 15, 22, and 26, 16, 3, 19, 21, 20, 18, and 21, 5. Hopefully you got all those. Benefit, of course, if you're watching on YouTube, you can pause and write them down and you can see them. Or you can rewind different things there. I grew up old school under Colonel Theme and Ken Jensen and Machine Gun John Eichmann and I tell you, there was no pause or rewind or go back. You just, you just wrote as fast as you could and scribbled as best as you could and hoped that you could read it an hour later when you got home <coughs> to try to review your notes and, uh, and all the rest. All right. So Mecha Shabbat, planning, thinking, even scheming, depending on the context, if the wicked are doing it, uh, the wicked can also put plots and plans into motion. And it's, uh, it's curious to me. It's a feature of who we are in our humanity. So that even fallen humanity still has the capacity for making plans. It's just sadly per- perverted and twisted and manipulated by his sin nature, by the world system he lives in, and by the, uh, the God of this age that he's serving. And so uh, our human capacity for planning gets so uh, twisted in, uh, in a variety of different ways. All right, but it's it is a blessing and it is a pleasure, and I appreciate this when we when we break down for you day six on Creation Week, or even day five and day six when we talk about birds and fish and and animals and creepy crawly things, and then humanity in the image and likeness of God and the capacity we have for rational thought, the capacity that we have to um, to make the considerations to make the considerations to override our appetites. Now we're not simply creatures of instinct. We don't just get hungry and eat, but we actually plan and we, we actually consider consequences and we can defer gratification and we can, we can um, uh, put forth comprehensive, diligent planning in a way that uh, the instincts of the animal realm do not allow for them to do. Anyway, so stay tuned for for that. Let's take a look at these and let's appreciate our humanity and our planning capacity here. These are the things that God hates. Six things which Yahweh hates, seven which are an abomination to Him, starting with haughty eyes and a lying tongue. Brought this up when we were talking about the haughty eyes of verse 4 here. The lamp of the wicked. Six things which the Lord hates, Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, 
a heart that devises wicked plans. This is the same machashava that we're looking at here. So the plans, it's not the act of planning doesn't have to be a good thing if it's designed for evil, all right? The heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. The seventh one is the pinnacle of those. It's the utmost of the utmost. But he hates all seven. These are the abominations that Yahweh hates. So realize in our planning, we can turn planning to a wrong use. Proverbs 12.5 The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. And it's the first of those that's rendered the, the machashava, the counsels as a separate word. Anyway, they're both used in parallel. The thoughts, the planning, the machashava uh, of the righteous is what God expects us to do. God has not designed us, and God has not even designed our, our walk to be just mindless, thoughtless obedience. That He, he wants uh, sons and daughters that are living in the Word of God, our thinking is transformed by the Word of God, and so our worship of Him needs to be consistent with these thoughts and these plans. And if we're going to love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that includes the mind, that includes our thinking process, the plans that we make, and uh, the blessing that we have to do so. Proverbs fifteen twenty two. Verses 22 and 26, both here in Proverbs 15. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. So here's an idea. When you're making your plan, get some help. <laughs> okay? That uh, we imitate God. God's a planner. We're supposed to be planners. But let's face it, God's also omniscient and all-wise, and we're not. Okay? So in our planning, we need to consult. We need to, and even though God um, is omniscient and all-wise and knows everything, He still consults. He consults Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they take counsel together. And uh, you think that's a pattern maybe that we need to be uh, imitating in our own planning? So um, yeah, find out, uh, find out how many plans get, get uh, frustrated because you didn't ask for help. Okay, And uh, especially when that help is supposed to come from the, uh, the helpmate that God specifically designed to, uh, to bail you out of your dumb ideas. <laughs> okay? So you have um, uh, you know, your, your, your spouse, you have your pastor, you have your deacons, you have your brothers and sisters in the church, you have um, and of course you want, when you're accumulating counselors, you want them to be wise counselors, you want to, you don't go to an unbeliever and say, what do you think? You know, go to a believer, go to somebody uh, under teaching you know, and, and take a true disciple that's living in the Word of God, that's under doctrinal teaching. And, uh, you know, that's, that's who I'm going to ask about. What do you think about this? And, and here's, a, here's an idea I have. And, and run it past them and say, and, uh, you know, honestly, what do you think? And, and then in the meantime, could you pray about it? Why don't pray with me about it? If, uh, if something comes to you next week or the week after, let me know. And uh, don't be so hasty about it. Take some time and, uh, and, and uh, see how God is faithful to provide the the wisdom on this. And it could be just something as simple as just a little thing and somebody brings it up and says, well, what about this? And, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. I wouldn't, 
you know, and just that one little improvement, that one little point then helps to, uh, for the whole thing, makes a difference between uh, success or failure on that. All right, with many counselors, they succeed. Get down to verse 26. Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are pure. And so same word used in verse 22, used in verse 26, but clearly in this case, in this context, it's, it's on the opposite side of things. It's evil that's at work. And God says it's an abomination. Chapter 16 and verse 3. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit your works to the Lord. You know what this means? Remember when we taught this? That means for not my will but thine be done. You're committing your works to the Lord saying, Lord, this is yours. And if you don't want it to happen, shut it down. Stop it. If you do want it to happen, then, then open the door wide and make it happen. This is committing your works to the Lord. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your steps. This is the, the surrender of, not my, of uh, not my will but thine be done. This is the thing where you quit trying to do what you want to do so that God can be impressed with you and you start doing what God wants you to do. You start running His plan instead of your plan. Your plans will be established, firm, fixed. It's, uh, it's amazing. And, and when you stop trying to uh, you know, force a door open that God hadn't opened. Remember, Jesus keeps those doors closed that no man can open. He also closes doors that no man, um, uh, He opens doors that no man can shut. So uh, instead of being frustrated by that, celebrate it. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in every closed door. Easy to preach, not so easy to do sometimes. Okay, If, uh, you know, I, I, we, we get that. We got praying for Pastor Dan, praying for others. And uh, if a door is closed and Corpus Christi is uh, no more, you know, the church, not the town. If, uh, if, uh, if the church is shut down, well, God's got a plan. And uh, he, he didn't close that door for no reason. He's got an, another open door and a trained pastor ready to go. And uh, God knows what He's going to do. I pray that He and Stephanie come back here and enjoy a time of refreshment and plug in with our flock and recharge His batteries a bit and just uh, no shame in that. We're going to welcome Him with open arms and total grace and we're going to love it to death. In fact, I'm going to give Him tons of pulpit opportunities and take a vacation or something and be happy to see him. So um, commit your works to the Lord, and 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 uh, there's no there's no failure in that. You just say, hey Lord, this is your mission, this is your ministry, whatever else you want to do with it, that's all of you. I think we got some more under here. Yep, nineteen twenty one. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And that's not an insult. It's a description, and I think it's a, it's a beautiful description. You know, many plans. Is, that, is, that a, is there a problem with that? I don't think so. I think it's the way we're designed. It's the way our, our, our you know, when you study biblical anthropology, what is the capacity that we have? What is the thought process in our soul? What is, the, what is the, uh, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart? And it seems like my soul has, a, has an intellectual capacity and my mentality facet, 
My spirit has an intellectual capacity, but the heart itself has an intellectual capacity. All three components of the inner man. And as far as making plans go and the, and the ideas, and, and um, you know, we don't want to d- diminish that. We don't want to turn that off. I think human creativity is a beautiful thing. I think human imagination is a beautiful thing. Like I say, sin perverts it and other things, but, but just, you know, we, we want to nurture that. And, and I think uh, in learning how, um, how people think is useful, learning how children think is useful, and seeing how, um, you know, different, we had four kids and they're all different, and they all think in different ways, and that's fine. And a, and a musician doesn't think like a non-musician. Right, Doug? <laughs> and an artist, an artist doesn't think like a non-artist, and they think in different ways, and they think in shapes and colors, and they think in, in uh, I don't know, kind of weird to me. They, they think in different. But see, I say it's weird because they think my thinking is weird. All right, and that's 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 beautiful. And if you have many plans, you can't do all of them. <laughs> so you think about which ones are doable, and which ones you would love to do in a in a different world, and which ones uh, you know. And which ones are doable? But then ultimately you just have to stop and say, all right, Lord, which one would you want me to do? All right, out of all these plans and all these schemes and all these ideas, which one do you want? Okay? And, uh, and some that never happen, you say, all right, thank you, Lord. Maybe, maybe next year. And then the ones that do happen, like our Through the Bible year we're going to do in 2022, I'm still willing to not do it if, uh, if the Lord doesn't want me to do it, but it sure seems like He's been paving the way and it's a, it's, it's a wide open door and, and folks are excited and I'm excited and there's a zeal and um, we got a hundred books already to, to start handing out and I think it's, uh, it's pretty cool. So uh, we say, alright, thank you Lord. The counsel of the Lord will stand. Proverbs 20.18 Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. As we talked about, you can, nobody's smart enough to make all the plans all by themselves. Uh, we need the consultation. We need to bring in folks with the expertise in different things in different ways. I'm so thankful we've got the, the, the resources that we have here with a variety of elders and a variety of deacons and deaconesses and perspectives of things that, that I don't have a clue about. But they can uh, contribute their expertise and, uh, and even going to war. Understand the logistics involved in that and the, the need for uh, tremendous planning to, to go into that. You need uh, all of the, the intelligence and the logistics and, the, and uh, the tactics and the strategy and everything else. And then finally, 21.5. That's our text today, the eighth and final time. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. All right, so our eighth and final time to feature the Machashava planning. This is also the fifth and final time to feature Harut's diligence. The fifth and final time to feature Harut's diligence. And the only time where they're combined in the same verse. Charutz, C-H-A-R-U-T-S. Charutz, diligence. This is the opposite of the sluggard. This is, um, as we've seen in the previous occasions, 
We want to be diligent. This is the believer that's going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. This is the hard worker. This is the servant of God that not only knows the will of God, but he's busy about it. Must be about his father's business. He's diligent. Proverbs 12. Verses 24 and 27. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. The slack, the lazy. And so, uh, you know, again, it's a principle. It's wisdom literature that portrays generally how life tends to go. And uh, it's pretty uh, normally observed that the hard workers tend to become the supervisors and the slugs if they keep their job, tend to be um, on the, the low end of that totem pole, assuming they keep their, keep their job. In fact, this guy being put to forced labor lost his legitimate employment and looks like he's uh, under some compulsion at this point. Down to verse 27, a lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. Too lazy to even cook the food. <laughs> man, so lazy you can't even, you put your hand in the dish and man, I just can't even get it up to my mouth at this point. That's, uh, man, you're, you're trying to win the, uh, the sluggard competition. No, that's too much work. But the precious possession of a man is diligence. Think about it. It's a treasure. It is a, uh, and, if, and if you can cultivate that, if you can train up a child to be diligent in his childhood, diligent in his teen years, diligent, you know, he's going to thrive better as a young adult, he's going to thrive better in, in college or military or, or marriage or life or what have you, build those patterns early. And if you've got a hardworking young person there, praise God. Because that's a pattern of diligence. It is a precious possession. A precious possession. Uh, 13.4 The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Uh, again, the consequence, the soul damage that's done or the soul benefit that's enjoyed based upon obedience to the Word of God and conducting your life according to these principles. You know, it's easy to sit around and mope and complain and, and say, boy, I wish I had something. And uh, but I'm too lazy to go get it. <laughs> you know, someone should just give it to me because I'm too lazy to work for it. It's too hard. It's hard work and it takes time. You mean I've got to save? I've got to uh, work and I've got to save and I can't spend everything I make because I've got to save and then I've got to work some more and I've got to accumulate. Yeah, it's called accumulated wealth. It's called uh, deferred um, gratification. The soul of the diligent is made fat. All right, and then the fifth use is our use in 21.5. And this is the second and final time for Proverbs to feature Mothar, advantage. The second and final time. Now some people would pronounce this Motar. Motar. I prefer to have a softer th pronunciation, Mothar. And that's just, uh, I've always preferred that, but anyway, if you, if you prefer the motar, you can prefer the motar, but to me, 
when I hear Motar, I think those stupid progressive motorcycle commercials with the, the Motar. Have you seen those? The guy that's half man, half motorcycle. And, uh, and uh, they've, they've done maybe a dozen of these dumb commercials now of this Motar character. And uh, anyway, the dumbest commercials in the world. But they keep making more of them, and evidently, Progressive Insurance has decided that he's their new... So they got flow for the women, and they've got, um, they've got uh, this Motar character for motorcycle insurance. Anyway, so I'm not going to pronounce this word Motar. I'm going to pronounce it Mothar. And it's the word for advantage. And it's used twice in Proverbs, and then the saddest use is the one in Ecclesiastes, because that's the human viewpoint use. That's the use whereby uh, somebody, without, somebody with doctrine but ignoring it or somebody without doctrine at all, with a human viewpoint perspective to the Word of God and human viewpoint perspective to life, throws his hands up in the air and says there's no advantage at all. What advantage is there? And it's a pathetic, hopeless, um, fatalistic, carnal, dark approach to life. So let's start with the good usages. <laughs> okay, Let's start with the only other time that it was used prior to today when we're looking at Proverbs 21.5. Let's look at Proverbs 14.23. In all labor there is mothar, there is profit, there is advantage. And God has designed it this way. This is how the material universe was, the fabric of this universe was designed because it's a reflection of God Himself. If you are productive, that is in your labor, if you are productive, then you are accomplishing something, by definition. So in all labor there is profit. You are adding to it. Okay, we're not talking about useless labor, we're not talking about make work, we're not talking about just busy work that's not labor. There's plenty of that. And, and, and the world designs a lot of that. Okay? But in true labor there is profit. Because you put, we call it sweat equity. You've put, you've put, you've contributed something to something. And so you've increased its value. But mere talk leads only to poverty. <laughs> so, yeah, talking about doing the work doesn't get the work done. You know, and somebody ought to do something, you know. And I see a problem, and wow, somebody ought to do something. Somebody ought to do something. You can talk about it, or you can do it. You can talk about it or you can do it. Think about how many presidents talked about moving our embassy to Jerusalem. And one president finally did it. Because talk is cheap. You can talk, 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 or you can do it. Alright, so in all labor there is profit. But mere talk leads only to poverty. So this is the, this is the benefit. And you get the work done and you put the work into it and you're adding to the value. You're contributing to the value. Of course, our verse today. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. I mean, how can it not? Because you're diligent, you're working, and you're working according to a design, you're working according to a plan. All the features of God's Word are coming together here in an optimal way. All right? And this is to be expected. This is normal. This is how the world is designed. And if Believers are following God's plan, then this is the result we can expect. 
Will there be exceptions? Well, will there be, of course. Wisdom literature gives us the general way that life works, but there's going to be exceptions. There's going to be unexpected things. There's going to be accidents. There's going to be uh, undeserved suffering. There's going to be other things out of our control. There's plenty of hardworking people that don't profit the same as other hardworking people. There will be different outcomes based upon all kinds of other circumstances. But you know what? God's in charge of those too. God's in charge of those too. Now let's look at the Ecclesiastes side. Ecclesiastes 3.19. This is the third and final use of Mothar in the Scriptures. It's very sad. It's, uh, it's the reflection of, of carnality. It's the reflection of not thinking doctrinal thoughts. Ecclesiastes 3.19. Alright, let me just back up a little bit here so you can get the tenor for how sad he is. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. So he's looking around and he doesn't like what he's seeing. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Oh, that's not good. What led him to that conclusion? You just look around and see it's all just an animal existence? Really? For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. There is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. Not only is Solomon here describing his own personal crisis that he's having at the moment, but he's actually describing 21st century American culture where our existence is diminished to that of the beast. That we're all just living on the food chain, okay? We're all just part of the circle of life. We're all in the tree of life. We're just animals. Homo sapien is no different from, from uh, canines or felines. We're just a different branch of, of evolution. Lucky for us, the goo to you was a little bit better in our, in our case than, the, than uh, the animal case. Sadly, though, they exalt the animals over us. And we're making a mess of things. We're polluting the world. And if there was less humanity, the world would be a better place. But uh, yeah, when you die, that's it. You stop breathing. You return to the dirt. You rejoin the universe. And you have no more conscious existence after that. That's what my atheist friends tell me. <laughs> okay? And uh, it's just no different than a dead dog. You know? Just go bury it. And, and, and really, you don't even need to bury it except you, you're trying to keep the flies and maggots down. So, so burial is just a courtesy to... Uh, other, other humans. See how pathetic this is? So in darkness, when you don't have the capacity to see the advantage, it's just a, a horrible thing. Alright, well, we'll pick up here, Lord willing, rapture pending next week. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these verses. Thank you for thy truth. Thy word is truth. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.